Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodale. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide, the pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking again with Richard Ramsey, co-founder of Living Works. This is the fourth episode in season three of A World Where Living Works, a season focused on learning about the history and evolution of their groundbreaking suicide first aid training practices, now being taught around the world. We know Living Works today is a global leader in suicide intervention. Thousands of trainers in workplaces and communities around the world teaching gold-class suicide first aid programs, like the two-day assist workshop, the half-day Safe Talk Suicide Alert Helper workshop, and the 90-minute online interactive introduction to suicide first aid, Living Works Start. These are programs that have been endorsed in more than 50 peer-reviewed journals around the world that have informed international policy and are implemented everywhere from schools to military bases, hospitals to sports clubs, and everything in between. In the last episode, we talked about how people really gravitated to the assist model of suicide intervention skills training when it was developed with Richard saying, it just worked. Today, we'll talk a little more about the evidence behind that program and others developed by Living Work since. They are often referred to as the gold standard in suicide intervention skills training, and you can see an ever-expanding list of the published papers and studies on Living Works website, with more being added by research teams and implementers in diverse settings around the world every day. Let's learn a little bit more about some of the key research from Richard's perspective. Hello again, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Kim. Great to talk with you today. If I was to say, here are the top three pieces of research that show this works in practice, what would you direct me towards? Well, the big one is um, proof that it works with those who receive the intervention. And that's been one of our challenges, that it's relatively easy to study those who have been trained and and have they learned the training and hear from them that says, yeah, I tend to, to use it, but Yeah, and I've retained it. And they've retained it, but we have no observable evidence of them actually doing it and then finding out from the people that received it whether or not it made a difference. So the only place that you can easily do that kind of research now in this work is with crisis lines, because you can do call monitoring and you can listen in on what's going on between the helper and the caller. And that's what happened at the NSPL in the United States. They were able to get a large research grant with top-notch researchers from Columbia University to do what turned out to be overall a seven-year study, cost $2 million 
to demonstrate that those people trained in assist compared to people trained in something else in a crisis line saw better results in terms of reduced suicidality, reduced depression, reduced anxiety, I think it was, an increase in hope. That's really the only study that's been done in our field of that kind. Other studies... And focused on the receiver, not on the helper. Yeah, the emphasis is on the receiver. And the only other place you can get this kind of research is if you're doing clinical work and you were measuring what happened to a client, let's say. That was one of our big hopes for Suicide to Hope because it was aimed for the clinician kind of person. And so if the research really gets going on it, then you'll be measuring or observing those who are receiving the intervention. So that's the big research. Then the other one that's really, really quite exciting is a conglomerate of researchers focused on testing examining the assist or safe talk and suicide to hope. And it's a sustained kind of research group over time. And that's what's happened at the Georgia State University in their teacher's college under the leadership of Laura Shannon House. And she's developed a cohort of graduate students who have graduated and they've got jobs in other universities and they're carrying on this research. She did a dissertation for her PhD on assist training, and she was an assist trainer, mentored by our late design and development leader, Phil Rogers. She joined the Georgia State University in 2016, so she's five years into developing this cohort of young researchers, and they've been primarily focused on education, school research, But they've now just branched into getting a large grant to look at how people trained in assist, I think, and maybe safe talk too, who are Meals on Wheels volunteers for shut-ins and older people. Oh, that's a cool demographic to train. Yeah, exactly. And it's been a real challenge for them to get a toehold because when they first wanted to apply for a grant, the grant reviewers would say, So what's the evidence that this works with older people? And you had to come back and say, well, we don't know yet. Um, And so the reason... That's why we need your help. (laughs) That's exactly it. But their reaction was, you don't get our help until you can give me some of that basic proof. The age-old research dilemma. That's right. And so they got by that barrier and they ended up with a $700,000 grant and now they have a $1.3 million grant. So it's opening the wedge into a whole new population base. Oh, wow. That's good. And that's pretty exciting. And so those are my favorite research sort of stories now in terms of hard-nosed kind of researchers saying, show me the proof. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, I just know, you know, as a trainer myself and other trainers around the world, Sometimes you believe in what you're doing and what you're teaching and the context you're working in. And often you're a member of the community that you're serving. So, you know, you know it intimately. But to really understand what the evidence is behind the model and where it's come from, it's just reassuring to be able to say that in a nutshell, I think, and and helpful to hear it from you, from someone who's started and and had all those late night chats with Brian Tanney and others early on to get us to this position. 
Yeah, and I was just going to say this is another example of this language of long haul. It doesn't matter whether you're a COVID survivor and you're into a long haul, but it's in this kind of work too. If you're not in it for the long haul, you don't know what sorts of things you might have started years ago are now catching fire and having some good results because you end up being only able to see where you started. (laughs) Yeah, true. And committing to it so that you don't chop and change. So I like that you collected experiences from trainers on the ground along the way, but didn't shift things too radically in one direction or other until you actually reviewed what was happening and right. you know, had a look at that as a collection of stories and evidence, I guess, that you can then inform the next learning or the shift in your approach. And we were able to do some things along the line. If an Australian trainer or a group of trainers said, this is how we think it would work better here, we would look at it in terms of some other cultures And we would end up, in some cases, getting feedback that said, well, it doesn't work over here, or it does. And eventually, we would end up going back to Australia and say to the trainers, well, actually, if you guys want to implement this, go ahead, because your feedback says it works. We believe it. But don't take it to Singapore or don't take it to somewhere else because we've checked it out and they don't seem to like it quite as well. And in other cases, it's like, yeah, everybody thinks this is super. Yeah, that's a universal learning we yeah. can take on. And then that's when we go back into the rewriting of a manual, then we can say this part of the manual came from Australia. It was the Australian trainers that really made this come alive and something that all of us should do now. Yeah, that's cool. That's the other thing that we found was exciting over time is to keep that local community development sort of philosophy and principle so that uh, people would take ownership. In fact, originally we used to say, when you go back to your community, having gone through a two-day assist training, We don't want you to go there and tell the world that you are now trained in assist or living works training. We want you to take it inside you in such a way that you really end up saying, this is what I've learned about suicide intervention training, and this is what I'm sharing with my community. And so you get people saying, oh, so it's you that we need to turn to. And it's not these experts somewhere down the road. It's that someone they trust endorses this approach. Yeah. So we really wanted them to take on ownership. And that's a little different than the modern day evolution of branding and marketing. We weren't trying to brand living works. (laughs) The market experts will say, well, you made a mistake. You should have been. (laughs) Because people have to know that this is living works stuff. But your trainer brands are well known. Yeah. So who knows, you know, what's the best way to, um, if you want market or get the message out. And there's lots of different ways. A few decades on, do you still see the heart and essence of the sort of ethos of the values that you embedded from the start? Do you still see them being embodied today? Because you've gone from a couple of you training two by two in California, for example, to something like thousands of trainers and around two and a half million people worldwide who've been trained. So 
Do you still feel a sense of the same values and ethos coming through? Yeah, actually we do. For me personally, I get it from being an observer of the Facebook kinds of messages. And for those who sometimes will post a little bit about the evaluation or somebody's story has been given back to them and said, you know, you made a big difference in my life. All of that tells me, not in a research way, but that those original beliefs are still there and they and they hold true. <laughs> and we've actually envisioned, I mean, of course, I'm out of it now. It's really a new era as far as living we're concerned. And we're faced with all of the challenges of COVID as to what it's going to do or not do. Can we as a, an approach to helping survive it enough so that we're going to come out of that crisis at another end and be better for it in the long run? And the future could look very different than it did 30 years ago or 30 years from now, what it looks like today. And, you know, we may be into virtual training. We may be into lots of different kinds of ways of training. But I think after close to 40 years that those basic principles are holding and there's no reason why they shouldn't hold for another 40 years unless something really drastic starts to come forward. But if I go back to what we were talking about very early on, Brian Tanney said he was a community psychiatrist, and it turned out that he was. That notion of grounding to the community is fundamental, and that's what we needed. And it was a mixture of Brian coming from a medical background with a community emphasis. I come from a social work background where it was the social part that was really the big challenge. The other two founders were both psychologists, so they had a different perspective as well. And one was a deep thinker person in Bill Lang, and one who always prided himself in being able to write the curriculum and bring that manualization forward without a lot of fanfare that he did it. Although if we're in a kind of an informal conversation or kind of a closed door conversation, he was known lots of times to say, just remember who wrote this thing. <laughs> you know, it was me. <laughs> so it wasn't that he was totally sort of ego-free. He really prided himself in what he did. And he really was a key part of the development team. Brian Tanney and I were we were more of the external face. We were the ones that would join IASP or the American Association. We were the ones that would present papers or publish articles. And so we were the ones that sometimes would be in your face at a conference. And Roger Tierney was that kind of extrovert too, but he was magic in the training room. <laughs> he had so much faith in all the participants. It didn't matter who they were he would spend time with them and encourage them and say, you can do it. I remember one time we were doing a demonstration training with prisoners in a federal penitentiary, and they took 40 of these prisoner people. They wouldn't tell us what kind of sentences they had, but some of them were pretty serious. And they put us in the chapel and left us. No guards, no nothing. And we were there for whatever it was, two days. No guards. Wow. Yeah, they just, Faith in the chapels. Yeah. And we were convinced that these guys would say that, well, I got two days off from the regular routine of this place. So I'm just going to put up my feet and they can babble away whatever they want to do. 
Well, it turned out that they were some of the best students we've ever had. They were keen, they were interested, they wanted to learn. But one young guy, probably a street person kind of guy, and he was in and out of jail several times in his life, and he was illiterate, and he became attached to Roger. And it was basically like, read this page to me. (laughs) Tell me what it says. And he and Roger were sort of off to the side so that the whole world didn't know what was going on. But that's the kind of guy Roger was, that he would find a way to make some time for you and to encourage you to, to keep on trying. When he died in 1997, the year after we got back from Australia, we started to get messages from people, like trainers, basically, from all over saying, you guys changed my life. Some of them said, I've been dead-ended in my job for years, and I know I should get out of it and go do something else, do what I really want to do. But I was chicken, or I didn't have the nerve. But I got to tell you, that's what you did for me. I'm now in this new job, or I'm doing this or doing that. Well, we weren't getting any of that feedback on any kind of regular basis until Roger died. And then it started to pour out and people started to say, this is what this has done to me. (laughs) And I want to thank, you know, a lot of times it was, I want to thank Roger and, and the rest of you for what you've done. But the impact has gone way beyond just teaching us some intervention skills. <laughs> we never would have understood that, which is also another way that in recent years, talking about, well, if you go through the training for trainers and you don't get out there and do training and it's been a waste of time and money and the old guard is sort of saying, well, I don't think so. We don't know what that trainer is doing now that's different than what they did before they were trained and how they are implying that in maybe some other aspect of their life. So we don't think any of this is a lost sort of investment. Not at all. You always hear from people saying how it fundamentally changes the way I interact with people or Mm -hmm. speak to people in my life or how I listen to the words and what's behind the words when I'm in a conversation with someone. So uh, yeah, I'd agree that even if someone doesn't go on to do a training session, that's one more person in their community who's reflected on their attitudes and shifted or made changes or maybe made no changes, but they're more aware now in their community. That's all the time we have today, Richard. Thank you again for talking with us on today's episode. Thank you, Kim. Great to talk with you today. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the start of Living Works from the perspective of one of its founders. Join me for more conversation with Richard in the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety 
for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.